Good morning. You can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1 this morning for our scripture reading. It's good to see everyone this morning. And uh, glad to be together around God's word so we can take everyone's frown off their face from last night and put a smile on our face and the joy of the Lord as we can focus on God's word together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 17, where the Bible says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish, in the, wisdom of, made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful today that you have given us your word. Father, in your eternal word, your living word, a word which will stand forever, we find your person, an unchanging God. Therefore, Father, we can rely upon you and upon your word because you change not. And Father, we come before you today in worship and adoration and thankfulness as we approach your word. And Father, we pray today that we would approach your word with an attitude of worship, that our songs and our prayers and the attitudes of our hearts might be acceptable before you, might exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and might exalt his word. Father, for in your word, you have teaching us not only about yourself and your, your, your amazing glory, your wonderful love, your amazing grace, but you tell us about ourselves. You, per, you, you, in your word, you reveal to us your plan to rescue us and to save us. Father, you give us instructions for daily living, how to navigate this broken world. And so, Father, we're thankful for the truths you have given us, and we pray that you would settle our hearts now as we approach your word. And, Father, help us to be able to understand the things you would teach us, that we might understand you and understand life and understand what you have for us in this life. And, Father, we pray for those who might not be with us today. Father, we just pray that you'd watch over them, if they are sick or hurting, going through trials or struggles, whatever they might be, maybe they're just away, Father, I pray that you would draw them to your side, that they might find great joy in you as well this morning. And Father, may that characterize our service as we share in the joy of the Lord Jesus together. May we come humbly before you as we are ta taught and learn your word. And Father, we pray as well for our missionaries this morning. Thank you for those who are giving of their life, lives and energies and focus to bring the, the word of God the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need it so desperately. We pray that you will continue to protect them and watch over them, provide for them, and especially prosper their work in the power of your spirit, even this morning. And so, Father, we're thankful that we could be together today and just trust you will direct in our service now. Be our teacher and guide, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn then back to Romans chapter 1. We began the book of Romans last week and looked at the first 14, 15 verses or so. And in Paul's lengthy introduction, we find some very important observations. 
we find that Paul, first of all, establishes authority in teaching them. Because remember, he had not been to Rome. He hadn't directly planted the Church of Rome. It's assumed that converts from Paul's ministry that had come to Christ through other, in other parts of the world who then returned to Rome had started this church. And so he establishes authority. And in verse 1, he, he first of all said his calling is of God. He wasn't a lone wolf out there looking for disciples for himself. Instead, he was looking for disciples of Christ, but his calling was of God. He was a bondservant. He was an apostle. He was separated to the gospel. And then verses 2 through 4, we see then his messages from God. The gospel, which was promised in the Old Testament, centered in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the rightful heir of David's throne, and declared to be the Son of God with power. And so the resurrection validates the divinity of Jesus Christ, and that was the focus of Paul's message. In verse 5, he mentions his enabling is from God. He received grace and apostleship, and, and, and the objective is a godly objective, for the obedience of the faith. Which, by the way, I didn't mention last time, was also stated in the, right near the end of the book as well. He, in, his, in his farewell to them, he mentions this objective of obedience to the faith, the, new, the teaching of the New Testament. Well, then we got to verses 8 through 15, we saw his passion for them. He, he prayed for them unceasingly. He desired to come to them and minister to them, to, to see them grow. And so we see the ministry of Paul, that it, has, that it was the ministry he had as he received from God to, to reach out to these Roman believers. And that's important. It's important to recognize that only, the only authority we have is from God. Whether you're a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, or someone who simply shares the love of Christ with another believer, the message we have is God's message. The authority we have is God sending as he sent us to make disciples. We are sent of God. And that was the basis by which Paul felt he could reach out to these Roman believers and also inform them of his hopefully soon visit to them. Well, then in verse 16, he begins to turn to his message. And let's just read a few verses here, starting in verse 15, where he says, So much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so he turns to his message, and this is just precedes the section of the last part of Romans 1, which talks about the depravity of man and man's departure from knowing God. He goes to the core answer to that when he mentions the gospel. Here in these verses, in fact, he's mentioned already by verse, the, by, through verse 16, he's mentioned the gospel four different times. It is the focus of his message. And I think what we find in these few verses is at least seven observations that he that he, in, in his stating of the gospel, and his reference to the gospel. The first thing we see here is that it's to be preached. It is to be proclaimed. When he says in verse 15, I'm ready to preach the gospel. It's the message that, to, that should be proclaimed. And it is God's plan to bring people to salvation, to use people to proclaim his message of saving grace. That's God's plan. That's why he commissioned us in Mark 16, 15 to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And that's important because the Bible does not lay the responsibility for conversion on us. We never argue someone into salvation, persuade someone into salvation. We are simply a mouthpiece. John 6 reminds us that no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws them. That is his work. In John 16, we're reminded and taught that it's the Holy Spirit that convicts people, convinces people of salvation. That's God's work. All he asks of us is to preach it. 
and one, Acts 1.8, he asks us to be his witnesses, which simply means to tell what you've seen or heard. That's all, we're, that's all God asks us to do, is to give out the gospel, the information God has committed to us. And that's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, in that section that says we're ambassadors for Christ, it tells us he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Because in Christ we find God reconciling the world to himself, rescuing, saving lost sinners, and he's given us that message. He's committed it to us. That means he's committed to our trust. That means we've got to do something with it, isn't it? That's why we preach it. It's our responsibility to share what God has committed to us. But Paul, and that's why Paul in his warfare passage in Ephesians chapter 6, asks for prayer, for boldness in sharing that message. It says this in Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And so he, he encourages the church to be perseverant in prayer. And he says, and for me, don't forget to pray for me, Paul says, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, he was currently in prison, that it, in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so Paul recognized as a believer's obligation to, to speak the gospel, to share the gospel, to preach the gospel, and he's asked for prayer. And I'd have to say, you know, when I look at this, I think, well, the Apostle Paul asked for prayer for boldness, and we ought to be praying for each other, ought we not? Boldness in, in our opportunities to speak the gospel as we ought to speak. And so we, first of all, we see here, Paul says, I'm ready. I know I have this obligation. He mentioned he's a debtor in verse 14. And so the first thing we see is the gospel is a message that needs to be spoken. It needs to be preached. It needs to be proclaimed as we ought to speak. The next thing we see, the second thing we see here in this passage as well, is there's a couple of attitudes, two attitudes, that are to characterize the gospel witnesses, those who are the ambassadors, those who preach the gospel. In verse 15, we see, first of all, we touched on this last time, there's to be a readiness. We're to be ready. That means we're to be alert for opportunities, ready for those, those rendezvous that God brings across our paths to preach the gospel. You could call it living redemptively. That should be the, 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 our focus on the day, the to seize the opportunities that God brings our way to share Jesus Christ. There's to be a readiness. We're to see people as they relate to Jesus Christ, not as they relate to me. Because when you see people as they relate to you, you get annoyed with them, don't you? Especially when you're standing in line and you're hurrying to get somewhere and the cashier and the customer ahead of you are just talking up a blue streak. You know, that you see people then how they relate to you. But God says we need to be ready, which means we need to see people how they relate to Christ. Do they know Christ? Are they on their way to heaven? Are they hurting? Do they need, do they need prayer and help and support or encouragement? Are they a believer who's struggling and so on? We're to see people in an attitude of readiness, readiness to share the love of Christ with them. And even maybe there's a note of eagerness here in this readiness, isn't there? So that's one attitude. The second attitude we see here is, is to not, what Paul says in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed. I wasn't sure how to word this, so I invented a word. I said, it's not ashamedness. The gospel witness is not, is, is not to have an attitude of shame, is he? And I call that really, in, reality, in, in, in actuality, is living with reality. Because that's what the gospel is. This is more real than anything we see in life. And here the, sh the, the shame is, tells us we're not to be ashamed of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Later in Timothy, Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 1.8, he tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. 
In verse 12, he says, I'm not ashamed of the, of the, of the suffering that accompanies the gospel witness. Where some people might think Paul was a shameful person because he ended up in prison. Paul says, I'm not ashamed because I'm here because of my testimony, because of my gospel witness. What is really interesting is this word shame is also used of God in, Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 2.11, it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. Isn't that wonderful? He's not ashamed to call us brethren, those who, are, who have trusted him as Savior. And then later in, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 16, it says, God is not ashamed to be called our God. Call us his sons. He's not ashamed. Now, that, that's amazing. That people can be ashamed of the Almighty God, a God who's perfect, loving, a God of kindness, a God of saving grace, of mercy, faithfulness, and so on. And he's not ashamed to be identified with us, though we might be ashamed of him. That's grace, isn't it? That's amazing grace, that God loves us and he's not ashamed. And so in reality, being shamed, when you think about it, is based on a false reality. Is there such a thing? A false reality. Because people think that, you know, Bible toters are kooks. That's what they think. Christians are, are uneducated, and the Bible's a fairy tale, and it's not for intelligent people. We're enlightened and so on, and if you believe in the Bible, you're, you're half crazy. And in our pride, you know, we, 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 we lend some respect to that attitude when we're like Peter, who says, who said in his occasion, I don't know the man when he had an opportunity to stand up for Christ, when he was ashamed. And we get like that in our pride, don't we? Because we respect that false reality that people think the Bible's a fairy tale. And in our pride, we're afraid to be identified with that because of the fear of, of scrutiny of people. When the reality is, if we think about it, is God is creator, he is Lord, the Bible is eternal truth, eternity is sure, the spiritual world's gonna outlive this physical world by millions and billions and billions of unmeasurable years, and that's reality. And so Paul's saying, I'm not embarrassed of what reality. The gospel, the good news, it is the power of God to salvation. And actually, we have to remember, when we do get embarrassed, when we live in light of the false reality of this world's opinions, it, we, it affects the credibility of our message, doesn't it? Well, if it's not really real to you, why should it be real to me? And so Paul says, I'm coming with boldness. I'm not ashamed. This is reality. This is what people really need to hear. This message is from God is in an attempt to rescue and save people from eternal damnation and from this present evil world. And so he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The third thing we observe here is the gospel is about Jesus Christ. It concerns Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news. It is about Jesus Christ. And for review, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15, if you would. Let's go ahead and turn there. Because we want to look at this passage when it talks about the gospel. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And we know here in 1 Corinthians 15, it's mentioned in its most basic form, in its simplicity. 1 Corinthians 15, if you're with me, in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, the good news of Christ, which I preach to you, and that's supposed to be preached, which also you received and in which you stand. And so they had received the gospel message, and they stood in it as saved people. Verse 2, by which you are saved. That's how you're rescued. If you hold fast to the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. If you really believe in the, in the gospel, you're saved. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Paul said, I obviously had to first receive it before I could share it. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so on. 
That we call the gospel in a nutshell. That is the core of the message. It's simple, but it's profound in that it, it, it's re reference to a tremendous work that was done on the cross when Jesus paid it all on the cross, wasn't it? Because on that cross, Christ died, was buried, and rose again. On that cross, in that death, Jesus took our death upon himself, did he not? We're told in Isaiah 53 that it was God who bruised him, that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that's why the apostles go on to preach, as it states in Acts 13, 38, and 39, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, this man, Jesus Christ, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Therefore, justification here is through Christ, not through law-keeping or good works. The gospel is this good news that God had a solution for your eternal damnation for, in, in that, to provide the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ as he put himself and took upon himself our sins on the cross. That's the gospel. It's a simple message, but it's profound because God laid on him the iniquity of us all. We don't know that, how that happened, but God accepted the death of Jesus Christ as an adequate substitutionary payment for our sins. That's the gospel. And, angry, and, and when you, sometimes when you see the gospel mentioned in the scriptures, you recognize that the gospel also extends to the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's not only about the, his death and resurrection. That's where it starts. But it includes the te teachings of the Lord Jesus as well. Gospel truths, as we'll see in this book of Romans. We'll see gospel truths in regards to salvation and gospel truths in regards to sanctification, living victorious and fruitful Christian lives. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The gospel is according to Christ. The fourth thing we see, it is the power of God to salvation. It's the power of God. It changes lives. It saves and delivers. You know, I think this simple verse gives us a profound yet simple solution to the world's problems today. Where is the power of God? How is it channeled into life today? How does it invade humanity today and humanity needs invading and intercession, does it not? It's the gospel. It says Jesus Christ comes into lives and changes them one at a time that we begin to orient to his truth and operate like his children. But it starts with the gospel. This is the power to change lives. And, and, and no amount of picketing and no amount of legislations is ever going to change lives or change this world. We know that peace is not going to come until the Prince of Peace comes someday at the second coming when the Lord Jesus sits on the throne. And nor does change lives come until the God who has the power to change, power to transform, power to rescue, power to heal what is broken and restore what has been lost comes into lives, hearts and lives. The gospel is the power of God. This is profound. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 1 as well. The gospel is the power of God. And so what does salvation include in the scriptures? What does it mean, salvation? Some people might say, what does it mean you get saved? Well, the first thing we know is it involves the forgiveness of sins, doesn't it? We've sinned against the holy God. And God says that sin requires a penalty. Jesus took that penalty. In Ephesians 1.7, it says, in him. We are redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And so salvation involves the, the forgiveness of sins. We're forgiven. That's the release of a debt that God, that God has held against us because it's been paid in full on the cross. It also involves cleansing, doesn't it? The Bible sees sin as, or describes sin as leaving a stench in our lives. 
It leaves stains in our lives that need to be cleansed. And when we get saved, it's cleansed. Revelation 1.5 says this, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Salvation is a washing, it's a cleansing from all those sins that had stained our lives. And we stand as Christians when you trust Christ as your Savior as cleansed. Now, we don't always live up to that standing, but that's our standing. God sees us as cleansed, and on top of that, he sees us instead with a righteous clothing. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's how we stand. I don't always live holy, and I certainly don't live blameless, a blameless life, but you and I stand before him holy and without blame because we stand in the righteousness of Christ. That's an aspect of salvation because that righteousness prepares us for heaven. Because if we were still carried the stench of sin, there's no room in heaven for that. Revelation at the end of the, end of the book makes it very clear there's going to be none of that stink in heaven because we're cleansed and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Another thing salvation accomplishes in our lives is, is it cleans our conscience, the awareness of sin. And it's interesting in the book of Hebrews, when the book of Hebrews looks back, it's a Jewish book, it looks back to the Old Testament when they offered sacrifices to cover sins. The, the atonement in the Old Testament was a covering. That's what the word means. It kind of swept sins under the carpet. But Hebrews points out it never relieved the consciousness of sins. It may have been an acceptable sacrifice, a temporary band-aid, but it never healed the conscience. Hebrews 9.14 says this, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, he was perfect, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We our conscience is clear. Our, the guilt is gone. We sing that song, gone, 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 my guilt is gone. Because Jesus paid it all. We're forgiven, we're cleansed, we're clothed, and our guilt has, has been washed away. Another thing that's accomplished is the restoration of relationship. Galatians 3.26 says, For you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We're restored to a right relationship with our God, and we're called sons. We can call him Father. And that's why we go to him in our need in our, in our, and in our daily existence. The, another thing that involves, involves in salvation is deliverance from enslavement to sin. Romans 6, we'll get there someday, is that passage on our freedom, but verse 18 says, having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We're free. Now, all those things are part of salvation. And we primarily focus on being rescued from eternal hell and assured of eternal life. But all these things are part of the salvation that only the blood of Christ has power to accomplish. It's the only message that saves. That is why we reject any message that includes good works. That's man's invention. Good works are ritual that contribute to salvation. And that's why the Bible states clearly in so many places that salvation is apart from works. Later in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, we're going to see, but to him who does not work, but in contrast to working, believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. You see, working here is a contrasted to believing. It's either one or the other. And many people today think, and they're, they're, they've been falsely duped into thinking, that it's our good works that get us to heaven. In some way, we have to contribute. Even within Christian circles, some people think they have to keep or maintain or prove their salvation by their works in order to be a Christian. Where Bible says it's by grace alone. 
Galatians 2.16 says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. The, works are, the good works are never going to accomplish these things. I remember years ago here, some young gal coming out and telling me one day, she says, you know, Pastor, I understand what the Bible says about salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, but I can never let go of my baptism. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. What does the Bible say about washing away your sins? How are our sins washed away? And she, and she recognizes the blood of Christ washes our sins away. And I asked her, how many does that leave for baptism? None. And, and she agreed with that. None. And that's the point. Good work can never take care of the problem of sin. And that's not God's program. It's the message of the gospel. Titus 3, 5 says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And throughout the Bible, we find that Paul, in his writings, were concerned about the perversions to the gospel. He addresses that in 2 Corinthians 11. He's concerned. He says that they're going to be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. In Galatians 1, 6-9, he mentions a curse twice upon those who preach any other gospel than the gospel of grace. And even here in Romans 16, later at the end of the book, he, in his conclusion, he, he brings this up. It just, he says, now I just urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Paul's concerned that people be perverted from the, the message of the gospel, which is the core message of this book. You know, when you consider people who approach heaven through good works, you have to say, you know, well, salvation is free. The Bible says it's a free gift of God. We're justified freely by his grace in Romans 5.1. And how much easier and biblical it is to rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross and think you have to work your way to get there. It's, it's, it's a rest, isn't it? And that's why the fifth thing we observe here in Romans chapter 1, it says here the gospel is, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It's for everyone who will believe it. It's for everyone who will believe it. For everyone. Romans 10, 13 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then in the end of the book, one, Bible, once again, in Revelation twenty two seventeen, we have that wonderful invitation. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him, him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And of course, maybe the best known verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten that whoever, 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 whoever believes in him, the gospel's for everyone. It's God's remedy to save fallen mankind, and whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, you might say, what does it mean here then when he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek? Well, we recognize the gospel started out with the Jewish people. You've got to remember, Jesus, when in, the, in, the, in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, came to his own. He came to his own. He offered himself as king. Those, those historical books in the gospels are really... Jewish history. This is Jesus. It was following the Jewish family, God's chosen people, and Jesus was born to be king of the Jews. Of course, they rejected him and put him on the cross, which God turned into our salvation. And, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the disciples are told, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And even as Jews, they may not have fully understood that. 
Though the Old Testament talked about the Gentiles getting saved and turning to the Lord, they might not have realized that. In fact, it wasn't until Acts chapter 15 that we, re, that we find that the, the officials and, and the leaders in Judaism and Jerusalem and the home church began to realize and recognize that the Gentiles could equally partake of the same salvation as the Jews did. It was that long. It was years before they came to that full realization. And so to the, to the Gentiles then, it's telling these Roman believers, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, it means the gospel start, initiated with the Jews. And then the Jews did what they are supposed to do all along in the Old Testament, carry the message of Jehovah God to the world. And they did. And then it came to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles got saved, and they, were, they find themselves then on equal footing before the Lord. And as we develop that thought theme throughout this book, we find that the Jews and Gentiles come to, come to Christ the same way, with empty hands, by faith alone. In fact, in the next section, as we get into Romans 1, verses 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, it discusses the depravity of man, and the conclusion comes to, in chapter 3, verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Both Jews and Gentiles, none. There's none that seek after God. And of course, verse 23, which says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so that bias that existed in, in, the, in the days of Jesus, the Jewish day was eliminated in the gospel, wasn't it? And so that's why he says the gospel is for everyone, equally for the Jew and for the Greek or the Gentile. It's available to all the same way through faith alone in Christ alone. And that's why in that conclusion in Romans 3, verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. The gospel is for everyone, great and small. Isn't it? So he goes on then, in verse 16, it's the power of God, it's for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But it's for everyone who believes. The gospel is a message to be believed. As we've seen here, that the gospel is something to be preached, to be shared, but for those who hear it, it is something to believe. It's to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. That's God's way of saving people. It's not through self-effort, not through wisdom, not through uh, self-promotion, accomplishment, whatever. It's through belief. And the word believe comes through the same root word as the word faith. Another word, there's synonyms in the Bible, really. You could translate them sometimes in either way, believe or faith. Faith is mentioned here in the next verse. And in all cases, it comes from the same basic root word. In fact, verse 17 mentions it's, from, it's revealed from faith to faith, and is written, the just shall live by faith. From faith to faith indicates the beginning and ending in faith. That's what it, that's what it recognizes. It really has the idea of, of all-encompassing in our lives. In fact, the NIV translates this by faith from first to last. And from faith to faith, really, re really what it means is that in every always and in everything, we relate to God by faith. We're to trust him, believe in him. Are we not? Faith is the way we relate to God, the way we enjoy him, and the way we appropriate the things he has provided for us, starting with salvation. Now, we have to recognize that these two words, especially belief and faith, are always have an object attached to them in the scripture. It's believe in, believe on, or have faith in indicating that saving faith is not simply academic, but instead it's, it's not just believing the facts to be true, 
but there's a personal connection, identification when someone believes in something, when someone trusts in something, and so on. It's to believe in Jesus Christ, not simply merely about him. It's to place one's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as one's Savior from sin. And that's why the Bible also uses the word trust to describe salvation. Ephesians 1, 12, and 13 says this, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we find here both trusting and believing in the same verse, describing the same transaction. Believing in Christ is trusting in him. That's the method that God uses. It's simple, isn't it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and all shall be saved. Believe on. It's that personal connection in which we commit our eternity to Jesus Christ by trusting him as our Savior from sin. There, and therefore, those are the terms the Bible uses for a person to get saved when they believe in the message concerning Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the good news, that Jesus died for me is something we trust in, believe in. And there is no such thing as just believing or having faith or trusting. Those words demand an object. They might be implied, but if someone says, well, I believe, you're saying what? And the Packers? Well, that's kind of over and done with for now. <laughs> but you believe in something. No matter how hard you believed, it didn't make a difference in the, in the outcome, did it? There's no value in, in the verb believing or having faith or trusting. It requires an object and therefore transfers its value to that. There's no merit or value in those words on their own. Faith does not save. Christ saves. And God says the way you have, uh, appropriate that is through faith. The way you enjoy that is through faith as you trust in him. Belief does not save, but believing in Jesus, who did all the work of salvation on the cross, saves. And therefore, when you consider saving faith, what it means to be saving faith, it requires intelligence, an intelligent decision. You have to have your faith in the right information. Because someone can say, well, I believe. Well, what do you believe in? Do you believe in God? Well, that's good, but that's not the salvation message. Well, I believe in heaven. Well, that's not the salvation message. What do you believe in? Faith has to have intelligent information to, put its to anchor its trust in. Some people say, well, I believe in this God, that God. And these days, in the day of tolerance and universalism, people say, well, as long as you believe in something, you're good. No, that's not what the Bible, that's what this verse says up here. Jesus says, I'm the way, Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so we must have the right information. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as a finished and complete payment for sins. So salvation is intelligent and it's willful, isn't it? It's choosing to place one's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And if you understand that correctly, that eliminates what some people call easy believism. Because sometimes when you preach salvation through faith alone in Christ, people say, well, you believe in that easy believism stuff. And what they mean is saying, well, you say that if you just parrot, I believe, you're saved. Well, that's not what the Bible's saying. Study scripture references. It doesn't say that you've got to get people simply to say the words. I mean, you can teach, you know, teach a one-year-old to say, say those two words, but they have no understanding of what that means whatsoever. You see, salvation is simple, but it comes at a great cost. And the cost was paid by Jesus Christ. And it is up to us to choose whether or not to trust Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not believing about, by the way, Christ. It's believing in Christ. You can believe the historical facts. The Bible says the devil believes and he trembles. It's believing in Christ. It's trusting in him because there's a problem between me and God. It's depravity. It's my sinfulness, which is going to be described in the next few chapters. 
And that has to be rectified, forgiven, cleansed, clothed with righteousness. And it's only the gospel that has the power of God. And how do I appropriate that? It's by faith alone. That was the call of the Reformation, isn't it? By faith alone in Christ alone, as our Savior from sins. And so faith, that deliberate choice that we make to believe in Christ, is based on two reliable biblical facts. This is the information. One is the gospel. Jesus paid for sins once and for all and forever. He took my place, paid my punishment on the cross. 1 John 2, 2, he was the propitiation or satisfactory payment for our sins. The second reliable biblical fact is that God promises that if you believe in him, you'll have everlasting life. It's a promise from God. Based on the work of Christ, God promises to you and I that if we believe in him, we would be forgiven and have eternal life. Believing, therefore, is a simple yet intelligent and personal decision to trust Christ as Savior. It's still simple. But it must be in the right information, and it must be reliant on the promise of God. That's why for some, coming to salvation may involve a process of learning. Learning about their sinfulness, learning about God's grace, learning about the cross and God's salvation. But salvation begins at the point when one chooses to simply trust Jesus as their own personal Savior. It's a decision we come to. It starts with the new birth, doesn't it? When we just choose to trust Christ as our Savior. Now I'm going to turn back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, our scripture reading for a moment, just to point out here this, this, uh, this portion on the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of men. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, our scripture reading we read this morning. Where Paul says in verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but us who are saved, it's the power of God. The word foolishness in this passage means folly, absurdity. And to, and to the world, it's absurd. It's foolish, it's folly to believe in Bible stuff and believe that all you could get to heaven just by believing. Because we're used to earning our way to heaven. We're used to earning everything we get. If you don't go to work, you're not going to get a paycheck, you're not going to have a car, a nice home, and feed your family, and so on. We're used to earning our way. If we want to, if we want to continue to have a nice home, we have to maintain it. And the more work we put into it, the nicer it is, and it goes up in value, and then they can tax you more. I found that out the hard way this year, by the way. And, you know, but in order to get you, there, we understand, there's, there, if you want reward, there's investment. We have to work and put effort and focus. If you want to be a successful athlete, you've got to work at it. If you want to be successful in business, you have to focus, and so on. That's kind of ingrained into our thinking, but grace contradicts that. God says, wait a minute, when it, when it comes to heaven, you can't work your way there. Righteousness cannot be attained through keeping laws, rules. And that's why this message here, that the wisdom of God, when he says, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise, what he's destroying is to destroy, bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the dispute of this age? All these people that have their philosophical approach to to spiritual enlightenment or eternity or whatever people describe it as today. God made it foolish. God's made foolish the wisdom of this world. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its own wisdom did not know God. They might be sincere. They might even use some Bible terms, but they still don't know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of message preached to save those that believed. It's the simplicity of the message, as the world calls it, the foolishness, absurdity, the folly of the message, that actually saves. It's the power of God. And so really, God here is, is destroying the wisdom of the world, which thinks that, okay, you've got to earn your way to heaven in one, some way, shape, or form. But the wisdom of God silences that message. 
because the gospel alone answers man's sinful condition. You can go back to Romans 1 if you, if you like. And on that line then, as we consider this, this point, that salvation is by believing, we must recognize that we have to be careful about what I call shortcuts to salvation. People that have tried to make the gospel more understandable, more perceptible to people, and in reality they're sincere, they may have good intentions, but it often confuses. We must use the Bible terms, what the Bible says about obtaining and receiving the free gift of salvation. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God to those who believe on his name. The way you receive that gospel message is to believe on his name, on the person of Christ. And so you have to ask yourself when you hear something different than believe, trust, put your faith in, you have to ask yourself, where are these things in the Bible passages about salvation? And one of the most common you'll hear today is that I gave my life to God. Now where's that in the gospel passages? That's not what the Bible says. Paul says the power of God to salvation is you giving yourself to God. No, he says believing in Christ. Because God doesn't ask you to give your life or turn your life over to God. God, in this case, is the giver. He's the giver and grantor of salvation. He's the giver of his son. He's the giver of eternal life. He's the giver of cleansing and forgiveness and so on. And in reality, to state those words is you're treading in a dangerous area because it's an invitation to good works. I've got to do something for God. I'll give myself over to him, and he's going to be happy, and I'm going to go to heaven. No, Jesus was, God was pleased with his son. And he says the way you appropriate that is to turn your life over, is to trust in him. And while it is true, we need, we need God in our lives. But how we get there is to trust Christ as our Savior. Another one that's quite common is ask Jesus into your heart. And while Jesus does come in, what does this have to do with placing one's faith in Jesus Christ, with believing? Some people say, well, that's harmless, and it may be in some cases, but I've run into a lot of people through the years who were unsure of their salvation because someone told them that's Jesus in their heart and never explained to them the great information. You're a sinner. that You have sin that needed to be paid for. And Jesus loved you so much, he took your place on the cross. And he just asked you to trust him. Now, in some ways, that might be an opening of one's heart to Jesus, but the Bible terms says to believe on him. That's why, you, that's why he comes into your life and into your heart, is it not? And so we use Bible terms. In fact, I was in a VBS back when I was in Bible school, and I dealt with one little girl afterwards in the counseling times or whatever that had used this term, asked you in her heart, 17 times. Never had assurance. Because God gives assurance one way. When we trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. Another thing you have to be careful with is, uh, is, the, is those who say they would seek a personal relationship with God. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing, but that's not salvation. You just don't decide to say, God, well, I'm just going to you know, kind of get to know you a little bit. Because we definitely need a relationship with God in our lives. The problem is, is we've been separated from God. We're no longer his sons. But two things we must re realize is, first of all, God is the initiator. We mentioned that earlier. He's the one who draws people to salvation. The Spirit of God is the one who convinces people. God is the one who initiated salvation in the first place in sending his son. He's the one pursuing us in reality. And yet, we enter into that relationship through faith. The verse I mentioned earlier in Galatians 3.26, for you're all the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the simple thing is, let's just use God's terms. 
Why not just use Bible terms? Say it the way God does. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so we use those terms. We don't use shortcuts, and we trust the Spirit of God to take the message of the gospel to make it understood in the minds of the lost. Well, the seventh thing we say, and the last thing, observation here in Romans chapter 1, we can, we can touch on this morning. In verse 17, it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Through the gospel, God reveals and provides righteousness to our lives. This statement's going to be answered in the next couple chapters as it reviews man's depravity, man's unrighteousness, man's lack of righteousness. Even the Jews are addressed here in this chapter. In Romans chapter 9, he talks about their self-righteousness, and he says this about the Jews up over in Romans chapter 9. In verse 30, it says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness. God's brought us the message of salvation, even the righteousness of faith. That's how it comes. But Israel... Pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. That's the Ten Commandments and all that went with it. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it was written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. That's the message of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And so the Jews have their self-righteousness. And, of course, then we find in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, that wonderful word but after it talks about man's unrighteousness or self-righteousness verse 21 says but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed and that comes through the gospel here the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel message through the preaching of the cross that God can instead give you righteousness and fit us for heaven and in verse 22 once again it's upon all who believe see this gospel message reveals God's plan to rescue and restore fallen mankind fitting him with the righteousness of God and equipping him for heaven. And in these few verses, we see these observations. We, we, see, we see the gospel is to be preached by those who know it. We're commissioned to carry it to the world. We see that gospel witnesses are to live with readiness and present it as reality, not being ashamed. We see the gospel is about Jesus Christ. It's the message of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. The gospel is the power of God to save and the only thing that saves and heals, and helps. The gospel's for everyone, Jew and Gentile, old, old and young alike. We see that the means by which we appropriate and receive the gospel is to believe, put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and God gives us eternal life. <coughs> lastly, we see that the gospel brings righteousness to sinful man. We stand righteous in Christ, and we're fit for heaven. And introducing this whole passage was the passion of Paul. The fact that he felt debtor to this gospel message. He knew the message, he proclaimed the message, and he shared it with passion for souls, as we see described here. And may we take encouragement from this passage, an example from this passage. And may we know the reality of those around us who are without Christ and without hope, broken and hurting, needing help. And we have the message to share, the power of God to save. And so let's pray for one another, that we may open our mouths boldly as we ought to speak. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning for boldness in our gospel witness. Father, we get so busy in life and distracted with our own stuff that we don't even sometimes consider people that come across our paths. And Father, yet may we become more aware 
May you make us more aware of the reality of people who need Christ. Some, some live right in our backyard, some we're related to, and some we don't even think about whether or not they're going to heaven. And Father, help us to live with that redemptive perspective and then help us to be bold in the gospel. And Father, help us to understand our message, that we might pre present it simply, the all-sufficient work of Christ on the cross. Well, Father, grace is an amazing thing, that you freely sent your Son, and you freely give us salvation if we put our trust in him. And Father, we pray that you would equip us now, teach us the things we ought to learn from this passage this morning, and may you receive the glory as it translates into our lives. In Jesus' name.